If you are between the ages of four to, the, to eight, you are excused to kids' club. Well, last week we started a, uh, a new fall series called Design and Deception. Considering God's great design and Satan's deception as we approach many of the cultural issues of our time. Last week we began in the beginning. It's a great place to start. Genesis 1. Genesis 1, one saying, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And we started with just the basis that that one sentence is incredible, and it's huge, and it becomes a statement that's the basis of our worldview. In the beginning, God. Who he is, as opposed to who we are. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and if you take that and you apply it to your life immediately, you have to step into the reality that he is God, he's the creator, And subsequently, you're the created. You don't rule. It's it's like playing with Play-Doh, and and, and all of a sudden, this little Play-Doh man that you make starts taking you over. Starts declaring the rules of the Play-Doh plate that you're playing on. It doesn't happen. It's the creator who rules, and this statement sets us up in opposition to the current cultural reality that suggests I'm king. It opposes it immediately. And we saw how in Genesis 2, 15-17, how God created man with purpose and relationship and boundaries. And Lauren Swenson actually alliterated it for me. She called it relationship, responsibilities, and restrictions. If you're an alliteration person. How he set man free in the garden with boundaries and with responsibilities. And this morning we're going to take that next step. And before we do, I want to pause for a moment and insert a couple of comments that I think I'm going to make for the next several weeks. Because we're going to start into some heavy and some thicker stuff. And we're going to start digging into some issues of sin. Now, church, I want to step into your face a little bit and tell you this. When we start digging into this, if you start looking around and applying it to other people, you will have missed the point. If you're going to write things down so that you can use them to judge other people, you will have missed the point and the gospel. As we walk into this and consider sin, the only eyes that you should be considering are your own. The only heart that needs to be considered is yours. We're not walking into a series to give you ammo to judge people. We're walking into a series to declare right truth. Because it needs to happen. So as we walk into this, We're going to turn now into Genesis 3. Because as Jesus as the creator set us up, the next major character on the stage is Satan. And he showed up really quickly 
to try to mess up what God had intended. So let's just take a moment, if you'd pray with me, I want to pray over our morning. Father, I want to pray for us as a church. God, that you would give me the words to speak that would be your truth. It wouldn't come from me. It wouldn't be my ideas, my thoughts. Got to be your word carrying the day. Your truth. I want to ask, God, that you would protect us as hearers. Father, that we would consider what this means in our own lives. What it means to my walk. What it means to my practice. And Father, we would take this truth and apply it to us. God, that we wouldn't be a people looking to cast stones. And we wouldn't be a people looking for sticks in people's eyes without first considering our own logs. God, judgment begins with the house of God. Bring us to a right place and a right practice where we think rightly about you. Where you are rightly established as the king in our lives. Protect us, Father, from the evil one. May he be bound from this place. In the name of Jesus, who is the king, we pray. Amen. Now we're going to be in Genesis 3 this morning. If, if you don't have your own Bible, there's a red pew Bible in front of you. You're welcome to take it. It'd be our gift to you. Last week we were on page 1. This week we're going to be a little harder. We're on page 2. Um, we won't always be this simple. We'll move around a little bit this morning. But turn with me into Genesis 3. And you find almost immediately after creation. In fact, we joked about it last week. It could have been a matter of seconds. Genesis 2.25 notes that Adam and Eve are naked and, and not ashamed. And there's innocence in that moment. And the very next verse, Genesis 3.1 says, And now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And this other character enters in the picture that starts to impact all of reality, this serpent, probably a very literal snake, one of the many reasons I can't stand them as beings, the serpent being possessed and controlled by Satan, and you start to see deception at play, even in the screenwriting. Satan never shows up looking like Satan. That's the first thing you got to cue into here. You know, we have all these cute pictures of Satan showing up with horns and a little tail. And boy, wouldn't it be easy to defeat that guy. He's always skinny and weak looking. Satan never shows up looking like that. Here he shows up like a snake. He's always disguised. He always shows up when it's unexpected. And he always, always, always challenges truth. That's what he does. So when he slithers up, he asks the woman a question. He says to her, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And these words seem innocent enough. They seem fine. But this is the great deceiver at work. And if God's work commissioned us and gave us purpose, relationship, and boundaries... 
then Satan steps in immediately to start with deception. That we would not buy into God's purpose. That we'd not buy into the relationship and that we'd not buy into the boundaries. So that we'd start to understand that our purpose was our own. The only relationship that mattered is me. And boundaries? Why would I have boundaries? I should do whatever I want. I should get to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I'd like. And who are you to say no? That's a cultural day we walk in. That's what the Satan, as a snake, starts pressing Eve on. Satan is at work. And with a little, simple, innocent question, Satan slithers in and plants a seed of doubt. He plants a seed of doubt. Did God actually say? In effect, he's asking, is God trustworthy? Is he right? Is he true? Who are you? Who is he? Did you hear him correctly? And Satan works quickly to change Eve's perspective away from the glorious blessings of all of creation. And it plants firmly in her perspective the one boundary that they were given. And isn't there something about boundaries that naturally makes us want to push them? There's just something about a boundary that we just naturally step in and go, wait, what? Can't? Maybe? Should I? One of my favorite illustrations is of my son. It'll always, I think, be one of my favorite stories because it illustrates the pointlessness of pushing boundaries. When Pierce was two, one of the boundaries we gave him, and it's a pretty smart boundary for a two-year-old, I'd recommend it to you if you've got one, is don't touch the toilet. It's pretty common sense. Touching the toilet is not a good idea. Why would you ever touch it? Secondly, it's just dirty. It doesn't matter when it was cleaned. It doesn't matter how thoroughly the person who cleans it cleans it. Touching the toilet's a bad idea. And it really doesn't get you anywhere. Well, occasionally, when he was in trouble, and he was trying to oppose me, he would run into the bathroom and touch the toilet. It's not like he was in the bathroom. It's not like there was anything else going on. He would get frustrated with me, and he'd run in, and he'd walk in and touch it. And he'd stand there and look at me like, Dad, I'm touching the toilet. Like, I'm showing you. And you wanted to laugh in that moment and be like, boy, you're touching a toilet. Like, process this. Do you know what we do there? Like, this isn't some significant move by you towards freedom. Pierce did it out of rebellion. He did it because he thought that's what he wanted to do, never considering what he was actually doing, what it might actually cost him, whether it was actually wise or whether it ever benefit from it. He did it because it was a boundary and he wanted to push it. And Satan's act, Satan's movement here, his act one, according to the Bible is to get Eve to doubt God, his boundaries, and his relationship in the same way that my son pushed mine. 
Satan steps in and says, don't trust this guy. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And you see the craftiness of Satan. Because it's not just one question, it plants more questions. God doesn't want what's best for you. You should get what you want. Who is God to give you boundaries? Who is God to hold you back? Who is God to say no to something you really desire? Finally, Eve musters the will to respond. And in verse 2, the woman says to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. And she's doing great so far. She corrects Satan on what he said. She corrects his words back to the truth. He didn't say we couldn't eat of any tree. And yet the seed is firmly planted. The doubt is there and is preparing to blossom as she continues. But God said, You shall not eat of any, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that what he said? Friends, don't ever, ever underestimate the word of God. For by his word, we know him. By his word, we know his heart. By his word, we know his character. And when his word gets challenged, his heart gets challenged. When his word gets challenged, his character gets challenged. And when we don't retain his word... We miss his heart, and we miss his character. This is why Moses, discipling Joshua, said, Do not depart to the right or to the left. Don't make this more constrictive than it needs to be. Take God at his word and go with it. Don't make it more, don't make it less. Walk on it. And when we don't take on, when we don't retain his word... We take on a distorted view of him. And he becomes less trustworthy. And he becomes less loving. And we miss him completely. You see what's starting to happen here to Eve played out in James 1.14. We'll come back to this verse a couple of times. But James 1.14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. And Satan tempted her. He lured her and he enticed her. And sin starts to give birth. And when God's word gets distorted, the nature of his heart and character get distorted, sin is at the door. And Eve, when tempted, misquotes God in a way that's simple to do. She adds to it. No longer is it don't eat, it's don't touch. And she misses the point. She misses God's heart, she misses his character, and she makes it legalism and rule following. The serpent steps in again, saying in verse 4, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And friends, don't miss this. 
The first false doctrine promoted by Satan in the scripture is that God will not punish sin. It'll get missed. You'll be fine. You'll get away with it. God won't carry out what he said he'd do. Sin's not bad for you. There are no consequences. Your eyes will be open. You will be alive. In effect, you'll be better off for trying it. And isn't this deception in its greatest form? There are no consequences to sin. It will not affect anyone. And you see where Satan is leading her. You know this story. You see how temptation starts to take birth into sin. And it gets so much clearer as you step into verse 6. Because what Eve starts to feel is not objective truth. It's subjective feelings. It's not this is what God said and I will follow him. She starts turning to subjective feelings. So woman... So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the woman looked at it. It's now her experience that this is going to be good for me, and I deserve it. This will meet my needs. No longer is this about truth. This is about how she feels. And that it was a delight to the eyes. This is pleasing to me. This is what I want. This is what I desire. I should have that. It's not about objective truth. It's about subjective feelings. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Oh, this is good for me. This is going to benefit me. I deserve this. This is an experience I should be having. So what does that lead to? She took of its fruit and she ate. And she gave also some to her husband who was with her and he ate also. And you see James 1.15 now played out that the desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. I had a college student once come to my office in Memphis. Tearfully he came into my office confessing to me, just broken and shattered that he and his girlfriend had slept together. I mean, you could just see it in him. This kid was shattered because he'd given in to sin. Something he didn't want. They'd been struggling for a long time. He, he went on to say, gosh, this is one of the hardest battles I've ever been in. We've struggled for so long. So pastorally, I stepped into it and I said, well, tell me about what did your struggle look like? And this is what he had to say it, it struck me, and it's marked me for a long time. He said, well, we've been lying in bed naked together for a couple of months. We've been trying as hard as we could. We decided that was going to be our line. Now, you laugh because you know how stupid it is. Like, what a moron, really. Friend, you're not trying, you're not struggling with sin. You're hunting for it. You've got a plan. You've You're working it out. And this is what we miss. Some of us linger around sin, hoping not to give in, missing the fact that the Bible says, flee! Run! 
Don't hang out. Don't consider. Ask what's true and act on it. Live in objective truth, not subjective feelings. Don't do what Eve did here and start feeling your way through it. Your heart is deceptive and wicked and it will lie to you. Flee from sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 6.18. It doesn't mean hang out and try not to give in. It means run the other way. This passage ends as it always does when we dabble with sin. And Adam and Eve pay a devastating price that they never, ever saw coming. They thought they were going to be wise. They thought this was going to be good. They thought it would be delicious. They thought it would be tasty. And friends, you know that consequence when you've walked face first into sin, believing it to be a good idea, and being pillaged moments afterwards. When you're brought back to the reality of the decisions you've made. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. They began to cover up because sin had walked in. And it had started taking a toll. And James 1.15, and its end had come to fruition. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And though Adam and Eve did not die physically, they did die spiritually. Because had they stayed in that garden perpetually, they would have been in a personal, intimate relationship with God, walking with Him in the garden forever. And they ruined it, not just for them, but for us. But lest you think it was just them, if you'd have been in the garden, you'd have been there too. Because all of us are prone to sin. Every single one of us. Satan slithered into Adam and Eve's perfect world. Please note that. It wasn't about their situations. It wasn't about their circumstances. They had the perfect situation. They had the perfect circumstances. They were walking as closely with God as any man has ever done. They walked with him in the cool of the night. They enjoyed quick fellowship. Satan slithered into their perfect world where God had given them purpose, relationship, and boundaries. And in two seconds, Satan had totally derailed them. Totally derailed their belief. Totally derailed their trust in God. Totally derailed their relationship. And it led them to act and to act out in a way that wasn't accord with what he'd given them. And Genesis 3 becomes an archetype of temptation. An archetype, a word I use to make you think I'm smart. But a word that tells you that this is a pattern, the prototypical pattern that will be carried out. Not just in Adam's Eve's life, but throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, throughout the early church, in my life and in yours. Temptation beckons. And if we don't flee, if we don't claim objective truth, we dig into our feelings, we give in, and we sin, and we die. And this wasn't just Adam and Eve. 
You see Cain opting for sin in Genesis 4. It didn't take very long at all. By the time of Noah in Genesis 6, nearly everybody on the whole earth was doing it. Such a God had to flood the planet and start over. He only found one family out of everybody. God had to start over. And with no, everyone but no one his family destroyed, you'd think as people, gosh, we're really smart. We'd figure this out. No! We continue to miss it. Each and every time we missed it. By Genesis 12, you're left to think that there was nobody left following God. Because God had to call an absolute pagan by the name of Abram to himself. Calls him to himself and God claims Abram and makes a covenant to him. This guy who blows it, who's living a pagan lifestyle, probably worshiping a pagan God. God steps into him and says, I'm going to call you and make you mine. And I'm going to give you purpose and I'm going to give you a relationship and I'm going to give you boundaries. But this time God flips the script on him a little bit. He says, I covenant to you. In such a way that understands you're going to break it with me, but I'm going to be true to you. And I'm going to hold my promises to you. And it starts to show you that picture of a redeeming God that will be carried out fully in the person of Jesus Christ. But Abraham blew it. And so did Isaac. And Jacob. And Moses. And all of Israel. Read any part of your New Testament. It won't take you but a page or two to find people who are actively deceived by Satan, who don't believe God's word, who choose experience and feelings over truth and deny him. It's all over the Old Testament. One of the most striking verses to me is in Judges, the book of Judges. It's actually so striking, it appears four times with the same wording. Judges 17.6 is the same as Judges 18.1, is the same as Judges 19.1, which is the same of Judges 21.25, just to give you a a brief shot of how much we don't get it. This is what Judges 17.6 says. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Church, mark that. Underline it, highlight it, put corner your page. In those days, there was no king. See, God kept perpetually raging up judges to deliver his people. They walked face first back into sin. As soon as the judge died, they forgot about him again, and God raised somebody else up. They kept begging for a king. God kept saying, you don't want a king. You do not want a king. They kept asking for it. A little warning here. Be careful what you ask for. But this is what Judges says to us. Says back into that culture. But I think really speaks into ours. In those days there was no king. So church, let me ask you this. Very upfront and very in your face. Do you have a king? And I'm not talking about a generic one. I'm not talking about a generic God that you could claim so you could show up on a Sunday and make your mom happy with you. I'm not talking about a generic God that anyone can talk about. I'm talking about Yahweh, 
The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who saw our failures and our shortcomings and chose not to forget us, but rather sent his son, Jesus Christ, as the atoning sacrifice in our place. And by that I mean Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is and was and is to come, who has reigned, does reign, and will reign forever. There is a reason why every knee will bow. And it is because he's the king. Whether you want to recognize him or not, according to this great book, you will. So the question must be asked, is he your king? Does he, do you recognize him and his authority in your life? Do you look the purpose that he has given you? Do you look for the relationship that he's provided for you in his son, Jesus Christ? And, church, don't miss this. Do you consider the boundaries that he's laid out for you, for your good, for your protection, for your sanctification? Because when God laid out boundaries for you, Church, you can't miss this. It's like Pierce touching a toilet. It's not so that you won't have fun. It's not so that you won't have experiences. God does it because he wants to save you from agonizing pain and destruction. God does it because when he redeems you, it's not just to put you in a museum or a hall of fame. He redeems you in 2 Corinthians 5. To give you a ministry of reconciliation. You were reconciled by him to be given a ministry of reconciliation. So that you start to reveal his glory to the world. So what the world wants to know what a holy God would look like. They don't have to read your book. They can look at your life. And they can understand what true holiness looks like. So it can be said of you, why doesn't he do that? Well, I think it's because he loves Jesus. Oh. Well, why didn't he do that? Well, I think it's because he loves Jesus. Hey, I know he really struggles with that. But he doesn't give in. I think it's because he loves Jesus. One of the most profound books I've read in the last couple of years is a book that I'll refer to in a couple weeks by Wesley Hill called Washed and Waiting. A man who has a full-on struggle with same-sex attraction but believes Jesus has called him to something else. You know what a testimony that is to the world? What I want, what I desire, what my flesh craves, I choose not. Because I trust Jesus. So whatever your struggle is, friends, accept his boundaries. Step into that. Because when we don't, we act like we don't have a king. We miss it. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's the world we're walking in. I want it, I should have it. Who are you to say no? It's right in my eyes. How does it impact you if I... How are you changed if I... And let's be real clear about this real quickly. I'm not talking about what the world does. 
We should never, ever, ever be shocked at what the world does. But we do have to mind the house. And we do have to look around and say, what is the church doing? Because the church, all over the world, in different pockets, is denying the king. And denying his lordship. And giving and granting permission for people to do whatever they want in their own eyes. If it feels good, do it. If it feels good, try it. Who are we to step into that? Friends, we serve the most high God. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. From the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created man, and he gave us purpose, and he gave us relationship, and he gave us boundaries. And since second number two, Satan has been at work planting seeds of doubt and deceiving people on their purpose, deceiving people about their relationships, and deceiving people about their boundaries. Read this book. It is all over it, time and time and time again. That's why we so desperately need Jesus. In the coming weeks, we're going to look at some very specific cultural issues. And we're going to consider what is God's design for this? And how is Satan's deception at work? It's not Ben's opinion. This isn't like Ben's fun house of morality. We're going to look at some objective places where God has declared his point, his purpose. And how Satan has actively worked to deceive that. Pray with me. Father, we want to be a church that rightly declares you, you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who loved us so much that even in the midst of our sin, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place so that we could have a right relationship with you. We want to claim you, God, as our king. Jesus, you have permission to rule and reign in all of our lives as any good father does for their son. We don't have to always understand it. We don't always have to get it. But Father, you're gracious to us. So I pray that you'd help us to understand. You'd help us to see. God, open the eyes of our hearts that we'd be enlightened to the truth that is yours. That you would create a work in us as a church, redeeming our lives and redeeming our struggles. So that as the world looks at us, we wouldn't reflect the world with a different shirt. But Father, we'd reflect your glory and your kingdom. That people would see that you are different you're better and that you're good and we'd lean into your goodness 
Thank you, God, that you've given us your word, that we could claim it as truth, even in the times of serious struggle. Your word is truth. Amen.